My guest today is Paul Tews. Many people in Democratic politics know Paul as the person who made it possible for Barack Obama to be president. And I am not blowing any smoke. He was the Iowa State Director in the 2007-2008 caucus campaign that won and took a leading role in the ultimate victory and reelect. He rarely does interviews, probably because, and this is why I adore him, he is still a humble Minnesota boy. Paul Tews, thank you so much for joining me. You also gave me my title on Press Advance when I first joined the campaign in Iowa. So you're kind of responsible for this podcast. I just want you to know that. 10%. I want 10%. (laughs) 10% for life. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Paul, I really wanted to talk to you right now because it is proving tough for any Republican candidates to go against the established candidate, which is now Donald Trump. And I reflect back to Iowa a lot for Barack Obama, 2007, 2008, when we took on Hillary Clinton. And I have to ask you, how did we do it? How did a guy with big ears and a funny name go on to win the 2008 campaign to be president of the United States. You know, I look back on that time and, you know, I think Barack Obama came along at the right moment in history with the right message and I think the right kind of campaign. I always tell people it was the first campaign that I was ever intimately involved with that didn't treat voters as if they were stupid, that showed a respect for voters, that met voters where they were not where we thought they should be. You know, you combine that, I think, with a hunger for authenticity, a hunger for originality that the electorate had, a hunger for something new, and a, you know, a relentless campaign. You know, I don't think there was a magic bullet. You know, it's hard work. You know, political campaigns are hard work. And I think people have to remember that. So I think you had a once in a 250-year candidate and a once in a 250-year moment with a campaign that you know, fortunately match that. I hope that we have more of those candidates out there. And I'm of the belief, Paul, that sometimes they don't get the microphone. And obviously, you know, Obama got that microphone at the DNC and then used it to really transcend into culture and politics. But the campaign was, it was like, what was right? It was respectful. You ran the campaign that had the motto, respect, empower, include. We're so far from that now. Yes and no. I mean, I think we are, but I don't think it's hard to get back. I think what I lament somewhat that I think people took the wrong lessons from Obama and the campaigns. You know, politics and campaigns, you know, in my mind, and I think most people's, it it should be in most people's minds, is an art. It's about people. It's about creativity. It's about human interaction. And every human interaction is different. It's about individuals. It's about the collective. And I think that people turned some of the lessons from Obama with the analytics and the, you know, the technology, and they took away the science and they forgot about the art. And increasingly our campaigns have gotten more centralized They've gotten more top-down. You know, we are spending exponentially, I should say, more and more money every year on our political campaigns. And we're talking to 
less and less people. And we are involving in that campaign less and less people. You know, I think that's a sin. I think right now in this moment in time, there are millions of Americans, you know, from Iowa to Minnesota to Massachusetts to California to Wyoming to, you know, battleground states that have some fear about what's going to happen or what, what the future holds. And nobody is asking them to do anything. Nobody's asking them to be involved. No one's asking for their labor. You know, I look at my emails every morning, as I'm sure you do, and I get 25 emails asking me for my money. I have yet to get an email asking me for my labor. And when you send a message that the only thing that matters is your checkbook, it is basically telling people that the future of this country is beyond your control, that there's nothing you can do. And I think that's a sin as well. But I, again, I, I think that there's people out there that want to be involved, that care enough about this country, that have a love of country, that all they need to do is be asked to do something. You're right. We get emails all the time asking for money. And we had this hope-filled campaign where we brought people together, respect, empower, include. And I am still to this day very proud of working with President Obama. I saw him up close really take so seriously the trust that he had received from the American people to make life or death decisions for people in our country and around the world every day. The White House was a little different makeup than the campaign. Like, I wish you were there. A lot of the people who built the campaign didn't necessarily go into the White House. And it was because they needed to have people, I guess, who had experience maybe. But I feel like we lost some of our respect and power include. And that's how this anti-Obama sentiment really grew and that disconnect that I saw. Because I do, I know voters who were Obama voters and then Trump voters, you're talking about the lessons of the campaign, but also I wonder what lessons we should have taken into the presidency that would be different. You know, I don't know. I wasn't there on a day-to-day -day basis. Listen, I think the sentiment that he always felt about, you know, change is a bottom-up process has never left him. I think campaigning is um, probably a little <laughs> quite markedly different than governing. So I, I can't address that. You know, I think one of the other things that changed a little bit, and again, another sin in our the way we do political campaigns is, I'll give you a stat. In 2008, I believe, Obama lost rural voters in the blue wall, so Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, by a combined 23,000 votes. Rural voters. In 2020, in those same three states, uh, Joe Biden lost rural voters by something like 730,000. Wow. It's so almost 700,000 more. Wow. To me, it's a very simple proposition. What has happened in a lot of places, and again, it goes back to the centralization that's happened and the rise of the science, is we don't even show up in rural places anymore as Democrats. And it compounds itself because if you go out to rural America, good people, you know, where I came from, they don't see Democrats. 
they might agree with us and they do with a lot of issues, but they don't see Democrats. So then because they don't see Democrats, they don't see themselves inside the Democratic Party. And that's a sin. So I think part of what it was lost was we left a vacuum out there when we stopped showing up. Trump filled that vacuum. And it became not so much cultural, but psychological. And it perturbs me a little bit that, you know, I, again, I'm from rural America. There are some ding-dongs in rural America. There's ding-dongs everywhere. But, you know, we kind of blame Trumpism on Trump, and rightly so. But it's also, we haven't been there. We're not there. So we don't offer the alternative that we should and could. And that's on us. You're right. And getting the emails and texts, and you may have some views that align with the Democratic Party in rural America, but you're at most getting those calls and texts, and they're asking for your money, and you don't have much because you're living in rural America, you're trying to make do, you're not employed by some big business, you're employed by small businesses that are hurting across our country. Um, and I think that we have solutions towards that, but they're not hearing those solutions. To me, it's that my mother, who taught me to be a Lutheran first and a Democrat second, runs around her little rural town and has to whisper that she's a Democrat. She can't get a sign anymore. You know, she used to be able to get political signs. I have to pay for one, pay for one to put, get her a sign to put up in her yard. So what happens when my mother doesn't get a sign? Well, then 10 other Democrats in her little town don't put up a sign. Well, you know, there's no sign, so I don't have to go into my coffee shop and join the conversation to defend what I just put up in my yard. It's just simple things like that that could change you know, some of the dynamics that if my mom had a sign, maybe 10 other people would put up a sign. And then you go, you know, like I said, you go into the, the little cafe and the coffee shops and the salons and the conversation changes. And that's what I mean by they don't see Democrats. There are Democrats out there, but we don't empower or embolden them. So nobody feels they even exist around rural America anymore, yeah. <laughs> which isn't true. You know, if you're looking at like the next generation of leadership, some of those exist in rural America. So if you don't, aren't given an entree to get involved in the Democratic Party, you're not going to be able to be the next rural leader from a location wherever you are. I remember 2016, people in Los Angeles were all talking about, you know, how excited they were to see Hillary as the next president of the United States. And I thought, I don't know if this is going to go down that way. And I got an email from you that was beautiful, and I want to read it. Thanks for all the texts and emails over the last day. It's great to hear from folks, even if the reason isn't so. Like many of you, I haven't showered today, ate the remaining food buried deep in my fridge and cupboard, and I'm still watching some really awful TV movies, Hallmark Channel, if you have it where you live. My wallowing feels well-deserved. It hurts, no doubt, and fairly surreal. My mother, a lifelong rural Democrat, yes, those still exist, called me today and recalled how she felt when Jimmy Carter lost in 1980 and how she felt when Walter Mondale lost in 1984. Awful, Paul. Awful. Like the world was gonna end. 
She then told me that today she got out of bed, walked over to a few of her neighbors' homes who had Trump signs in their yards, and there were more than a few, had coffee with them and said, congratulations, I wish him well, but we'll get you next time. She reminded me that sometimes what we believe and labor for comes up short, but more importantly, what we believe and what we labor for does not die with one bad election or one bad moment when it doesn't go our way. Beliefs and acting upon them and laboring and fighting for life for them is a lifelong pursuit. There are highs and lows, but our beliefs stay with us. Our acting on those beliefs is our choice. Many of you have grown to become leaders in the Democratic Party or progressive world or in your new passions in life. And all of you, I know, continue to care enough to follow your beliefs into action. There will be a next time and even more after that. Don't stop. Take a vacation, hug your family, call your mom often, watch some crappy movies, go get a new habit, or take some time on this one. It's okay. Lick your wounds, but know, though, that new missions and new challenges will come your way and command your heart and passion. Know, too, these will be just as important as the ones before. The world will keep spinning. Maybe a little office axis for the next four years, but as you have before and do every day, you will continue to have the ability to shape it. Thanks for reading. It was good therapy for me to write. Now, I think I'll shower. Ah, uh, not yet. The A-Team movie just came on. Seriously, Channel 156 if you live in the Annapolis area. So... Paul, I think about this email often because I think some people thought that with the election of Trump, that our country is over. And then some people thought with the election of Biden that our country was over. And this rhetoric goes so far sometimes that ordinary people in states across our country fear to be an American. And I think we waste so much time on fear. I wanted to get your reflection on that email sent in 2016, now today. You know, there's millions of Americans that have a passion and act on their passion on improving their community, improving their neighborhood, improving their country in whatever way they see fit or in whatever belief system they hold. And I think that should be encouraged, not discouraged. I think that people in the Democratic Party and in the country as a whole, you know, we should celebrate and foster people wanting to act on their beliefs. Whatever this election brings, I'm optimistic that Joe Biden's going to prevail, you know, but I do think that, you know, people need to remember that it's within their power to do something about it. You bring up Joe Biden. And it's funny to me now that David Axelrod is going so hard against Joe Biden, because I remember David Axelrod in Scranton, Pennsylvania, when we were setting up an event to introduce that he was now on the ticket, he was selling me on this old guy who we had handily defeated joining the ticket. So <laughs> what's your favorite Joe Biden story? Let's start there. I was not around the White House. I never really interacted with him. You know, I remember in, during the campaign, I'd bump around, you know, you're bumping around Iowa, you'd, you'd see them. You remember in 08, the Democratic Party had a lot of good candidates. Bill Richardson, you know, very accomplished. 
you know, John Edwards had, you know, kind of some issues. <laughs> uh, well, but you know, but he had a, you know, I think he had a really strong message and a great following in Iowa. I mean, you know, when we started, he was, you know, trading leads with Hillary. You know, you had Hillary, you had Biden, Chris Dodd. So I, I didn't really interact with Joe Biden. You know, I think the people that have worked for him that I know are loyal because he's a good person. You know, and that says a lot. You know, I always judge the way when political leaders are off camera, how do they treat, you know, the people that are working for them? I think is a judge of character and everything I've ever heard is, you know, he's a decent person. You've interacted with him. Yeah, I have. What's your take? Well, I tell a story about when Hugh, I was very pregnant with my son, Hugh. And uh, I would always go to wrap-up meetings early because I didn't want to be the person who would walk in pregnant to a room with very limited seating. And someone would, like, get up for me, and then it would be awkward. So I'd get there early, and I'd wait outside of Jay Carney's office. And, you know, Jay Carney had worked for Biden for a long time. So often Biden would come into Jay Carney's office and just chat with him. And when he saw me pregnant, he was like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> what an incredible, like, oh, my God. And a lot of people do this when you're very pregnant. They say, can I touch it? And I, I think it's the coolest thing, you know, like belly with a life in it is surreal. So I was like, yeah. And he's like, goes on and on about, you know, I just hope he's, you know, all these things. And I say, I hope he's healthy. And when Hugh was born, he remembered that. He's one of those people who's genuine in that way. And like you, you know, I worked with President Obama, so did mostly his trips in the White House, so didn't have as much interaction with him. But a lot of the issues that we care about, I mean, the fact that he now does have an economy that's beating where Trump's was, the fact that he is trying to work on child care tax credit, that he is trying to push through pre-K program, that he is working on things that I care very much about, like including the fact that women and their partners should make the decision, not a government official like uh, Donald Trump, whether someone should have an abortion or have the right to their own destiny. And so I think a lot of people get so like, oh, I was so enthused about Obama, right? And they can't just get behind the values when it's a different person there. And I don't know what that means. Like, did we give them that you said it was like a once in a lifetime candidate? Did we ruin Democrats for the future of like, anybody or do we just need to find that next democrat that's the question i don't know if you and i have, are in charge of finding anybody but i think that we should task ourselves paul i think i think the world needs a little bit more respect and power include i'm just gonna say <laughs> you know i do agree with that but you know i might be in the minority in uh democratic politics but you know i love primaries at every level because i think that's how candidates get better. That's how they get tested. That's how they test themselves. You know, I always say about 08, we had to run in 50 states in the primary. That just made us so much stronger in the general election. That made him a better candidate. I mean, he'd say himself in his book that when he started out running in 2008, he needed to find his sea legs. He was maybe a little long-winded, a little 
professorial, a little, um, he couldn't find his pace. You know, you, you go to town hall after town hall and you have to stand up in front of voters or, you know, coffee shop to coffee shop. You have to stand in front of voters and that tests you, that refines you, that that's great for this country. And this movement to coronate is just, you know, in both parties, I think is just terrible because it doesn't allow for a candidate to grow. And moreover, it allows for the only thing to matter is money and the 30 second soundbite. You can't survive a Democratic primary, you know, in a multi-candidate field if you're just a 30 second soundbite. You can't. So I think we should, in future years, encourage more people to run because you never know. That's exactly right. The Republican debate I was at for News Nation, I was so disappointed, Paul, because I was watching this debate that didn't have their front runner on stage. Megyn Kelly, for whatever reason, has this singular focus on trans kids. And I just hate how much we hate on anyone. Like if these kids feel like they're in a different body, it's not my problem. It's like there are bigger things, including our economy, that I think we should spend the majority of time on. So it was depressing, but I also started thinking about the general, I don't know if we're going to have a debate. And if we don't have a debate, oh my God, what is American politics without actually debating the issues? I'm for a debate a week, just because I think it it makes candidates better. You know, they can't just go off, you know, saying crazy things without being more accountable. And two, it puts a lens side by side, you know, for the American people. Yeah, I hope we have three. I hope we have more. I'm for more. I think the American people deserve that. You know, these candidates have to be accountable. You know, there's a percentage on both sides that just aren't going to change their mind. <laughs> you know, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know who I'm voting for. What do you want to see in the future? I think uh, less hate. Here's the thing. I'm optimistic. I don't think most Americans hate. You know, I think all of us have a you know, our own opinions and a little bigotry here and there. We all have, you know. We have bias. Everybody is biased, right? You know, I'm still the Michelle Obama. When when they go low, we go high. I think that's what this country needs. I think that's what people want. And I see it, you know, when I go home and visit mom and I, you know, I know all her neighbors and they're good people, real good people. You know, I think they're sick of being asked to hate. I think that this idea that, you know, we have to denigrate people to make America great again is, uh, it's getting old. It's exhausting to have that hate in you. You know, again, I think our politics should lift people up, should ask more of people. That's why I got into it. I love being an American, but I also love the idea that one person can change it. You're right. One person can change it. Like we watched that. When I hear you talk about it, it is. It's so exhausting to hate. And I don't like it when people start talking about like MAGA Republicans either, because I know some of them and actually like many of them agree with some of the things like they feel like they're left behind. They want a tax policy that works for them. Like we could have that conversation, but it's like, God, is that as bad as... Like Democrats are saying MAGA Republicans and they're saying, you know, the awful liberals or whatever. Is it equally bad? Well, I'm not a big believer in the our side, this side, whatever that thing is. I'm a Democrat because I 
you know, I think we're the party of opportunity. I think we're the party that understands, you know, that we're not all the same. You know, we all come from different backgrounds, different places, different cultures. We have different skin colors. We have, you know, different belief systems. I even say in the, you know, the inside the Democratic Party, inside anywhere, inside your house, there are no two people in this world that agree 100% on everything. And how boring of a world that would be. And, you know, I think we are a, a tolerant party, you know, and so I think, you know, we just have to keep remembering who we are and not be shy about it. Is Michelle Obama going to run? I highly, highly doubt it. We'd be awesome. She would be awesome, but uh, no. She would be awesome. I know. Okay, so what bad movies can we watch this cycle to get us through this divisive time? What do you suggest? What's on your list? Let's see. I don't. Well, I saw the color purple in the theater. The new one that was awesome, actually. Uh, Louder Milk. You ever watched that on Netflix? No, I haven't watched it. I gotta watch it. Ron Livingston, who's the guy in off, you know, from the Office Space. It's an older series. I love the bear. Yeah. If any, if you haven't watched the bear, go watch the bear. Probably the best show I've seen in the last five years. Unbelievable. Did you watch the Obama movie? Leave the world behind. It's a rough watch, Paul. Oh, really? Yeah. It's as if there's been a cyber attack on America and then everybody kind of turns against each other and like it ends with like bunkers. And I thought, I'm kind of surprised that our former boss is like in the business of selling meals ready to eat. I don't think that was his intention. I think it was like more cerebral of like what this could be if we all stopped trusting each other. But I think the masses who get it on Netflix might not see that. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Thank you, Paul Tews. I I am hopeful we get to that more, you know, hopeful politics. And I hope that press advance, which, of course, you do deserve 10% of whatever we eventually <laughs> do. Uh, um, it, it is uh, designed to press advance on this toxic moment. So thank you so much for inspiring us today no i don't know if i did anything but uh yes your career is uh fun to watch and i know you've done well and that's due to you and the support of your family yeah that's right my mom my dad that's right i can say <laughs> things right now but yeah, i won't yeah. all right you take uh, care thank you so much paul that was really fun, catching up with Paul Tews. It is an interesting election cycle. Every day, new twists and turns. And sometimes I feel like there isn't a lot of respect for one another, which is the very reason I wanted to talk to Paul Tews, who started the campaign in Iowa for Barack Obama that was Respect, Empower, Include. Now, he put boots on the ground in every county. He got people involved, and I thought it was so interesting that he made the point that right now, when you just get fundraising emails, it's defeating. It's the exact opposite of what our democracy should be. I still believe fundamentally that our country was built on voices that believe that yes, we can, make a difference, which is why I launched Press Advance and why I am enjoying so much the growing community. If you liked Press Advance, please click follow any social media platform where you listen. And if you have feedback, find me on social media at Johanna Masca. 
My thanks, as always, to our incredibly talented team from Situation Room Studios, led by Christine Barada. 